Hello, 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 and welcome to Tease Me. This is a podcast about the intersection of golf, business, and life. And occasionally we'll drop some gems on networking and just how that makes your life better. Because knowing more than one person is actually a good thing. Hello, Tease Me listeners. Welcome to October. It's my birthday month. It's sweater weather. It's pumpkin spice season and candy corn season. All of the things that are very debatable. However, it's also Mental Health Awareness Month. And I don't know if it's just a month or a day. It should be every day. And mental health is health. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about a more difficult topic with a guest that really is focused on uplifting and improving the perception and the understanding of mental health in our community and all communities. If you ever check out my Instagram feed, you'll see that I'm often having a very good time on the golf course. It is my place of zen because I can appreciate the ability to walk from hole to hole, to breathe deeply when many people can't breathe right now, they're on ventilators, or to be able to observe the beauty of the green grass or the blue skies, and to really be present. I know a lot of people love to go out there, hit the ball, chop it up, be competitive, but for me, it's my place of peace. So when people disrupt that, I don't enjoy the round as much because I know why I'm there and I know what my purpose is. And so when I have to ground myself in that moment, I can't let other people distract me from what brought me there. I think about times when I was younger and I have to go to visit people with my grandmother. She loved going, I don't know if she loved it, but she was a nurse and we often visited the sick and shut in. And I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. I don't know if you were one of those kids that were sitting with your grandmother at like funerals, but I was. And I remember going to visit people at their homes that they couldn't leave and she would pray with them and And I'd just be there and I'd play with their grandchildren because usually there were other kids there sometimes, or sometimes there were. And I just remember the sadness of not being able to leave your room. Like, really think about it. Sick and shut in. So not only are you ill, you literally can't leave. And as we think about mental health and we think about being present and being super grateful for what we can and cannot do, it's being able to say, you know, Maybe I'm being held back from this space, but there's a blessing in that. Or maybe when I'm here, I need to pay attention to why I'm here and the fact that I am here and just be grateful for that as well. So as we think about mental health awareness, there are some very difficult conversations that people are not willing to have. And whether it's through trauma that's been repressed or just dealing with the day-to-day and not having the coping strategies or the tools needed to be okay and not even being aware of when you're not okay, but just going through the day-to-day because there's just not enough time to think about your health or think about your mental health because there's physical health and there's mental health. These are things I want us to focus on for this conversation. So while it is deep, it is an enjoyable dialogue with Dr. Michael Lindsay. I am honored to introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Michael A. Lindsay, who is a noted scholar in the fields of child and adolescent mental health, as well as a leader in the search for knowledge and solutions to generational poverty and inequality. He is the executive director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University, NYU, the Constance and Martin Silver Professor of Poverty Studies at NYU Silver School of Social Work, and an Aspen Health Innovators Fellow. He also leads a university-wide Strategies to Reduce Inequality initiative from the NYU McSilver Institute. 
At the NYU McSilver Institute, Dr. Lindsay leads a team of researchers, clinicians, social workers, and other professionals who are committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating their findings into action through policy and best practices. Additionally, he leads the working group of experts supporting the Congressional Black Caucus Emergency Task Force on Black Youth, Suicide, and Mental Health, which created the first report, Ring the Alarm, The Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America. He is a distinguished fellow of the National Academies of Practice, NAP, in social work, and a fellow for the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare, and serves on the editorial boards of a number of journals that you'll see in the show notes. He was also appointed as a member of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to serve on the Community Preventative Services Task Force, CPSTF. Dr. Lindsay was recognized on City and State's inaugural Mental Health Power 50 list, which acknowledged some of the most influential leaders and professionals who have worked towards making a difference in the lives of New Yorkers with living with mental illness. Dr. Lindsay holds a PhD in social work and MPH from the University of Pittsburgh, an MSW from Howard University, and a BA in sociology from Morehouse College. Let's welcome Dr. Michael Lindsay. Hello, hello, Tease Me listeners. We are very excited today because we have Dr. Michael Lindsay. And as you heard in the bio, he has authored the Ring the Alarm, the Crisis of Black Youth Suicide. And I wondered, where do we even start with this conversation? Like, Dr. Lindsay, can I call you Mike? Yes, please. Okay, thank you, thank you. So Dr. Michael Lindsay, aka Mike, tell us what prompted you to even issue this report? All right, so first, I have to give credit to all of the remarkable, incredible individuals that are a part of the working group of experts that helped to author the report. Now, I chaired the working group of experts, um, but it was a collective effort. Uh, I wanna start with my McSilver colleagues, um, Rose Pierre-Louis, who is our chief operating officer, um, Cheryl uh, Huggins-Solomon, who is our chief communications officer and other members of the McSilver team, as well as the uh, working group of experts we all collaborated on the development of that report, which I'm proud to say, Latoya, became the basis of the Pursuant Equity and Mental Health Act uh, that actually passed in the House of Representatives on May 12th, I wanna say, uh, of 2021, by a margin of 374 to 49, um, co-sponsored by Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman and John Katko from New York. Um, and so the whole basis of this work is, oh, by the way, there's a, a Senate version of the bill that's currently being considered in the U.S. Senate. But the basis of this, uh, of this work, Latoya, was really around um, documenting the rising trends in suicide among Black youth. Um, so, for example, uh, a study that I um, first authored and had some others contribute with me as co-authors um, we looked at data from 1991 through uh, 19, I'm sorry, 2017 from the Centers for Disease Control. And every other year since 1991, they've been um, doing a nationally representative survey 
on um, high school age youth across the United States. And in that study, we documented that there was a 73% increase in suicide attempts from 1991 through 2017 for black youth. Every other racial and ethnic group saw a decrease in suicide trends over that time. Um, some more recent data we have um, analyzed showed that between 1991 and 2019, there was actually about 144% increase in suicide attempts, again, only for black youth. So we've been documenting that. And then colleagues like Ariel Sheftal and, and Jeff Bridge, uh, who are at Ohio State University, also have been documenting the rising trend in deaths, suicide deaths of youth between five and 12 years old. And so if that alarms anyone, yes, as young as five years old, um, who have been increasingly dying by suicide. And so the report then is uh, reflective of a need for us to ring the alarm on what's happening with Black youth. Um, I'll say this also, Latoya, that one might suspect that given a topic like suicide, that we're talking about um, you know, mental health that is untreated, mental health issues like depression, trauma, anxiety. Um, but I will submit this, that I think the rising trend in suicides and suicide behaviors among Black youth is actually reflective of something else beyond psychiatric factors like depression, trauma, um, anxiety, et cetera. I think that we need to unpack what is really happening with kids. And that's why in the report, we advocated for more research to be supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. And to their credit, they have responded and other federal agencies to give us the opportunity to actually do the research to understand and document what are the non-psychiatric factors that might be related to these rising trends. Uh, certainly we have a lot of work to do, but I'm proud, I'm proud to be in the space to, to do this work because, um, you know, Latoya, it's something that we're not talking about enough. Um, that's why we framed it Ring the Alarm because we know that it, it is reaching um, sort of crisis uh, proportions in terms of its impact on Black youth. And we need to be talking about it. And I appreciate this opportunity to be with you to, to talk about it in this space. So thank you, Mike. This is a very new and different type of topic for us to cover on Tease Me. And obviously we're going to talk about the intersection of golf and mental health, but there are a few things that came up and this rise or increase that you've noticed. I, I wonder, was it ever really being documented, the stories of young black boys and girls even, or just young black people and their um, suicide rates to begin with? Like, were was anyone paying attention? Where is the preceding date? Or is there even any data before the study was conducted? Yeah, so that's a great, great question. Thank you for asking that because from our data analyses, what we've been able to determine is that around 1998 and between the years 1998 and 2002, um, and again, my colleagues, Jeff Bridge and Ariel Sheftal were the first to document this, that we started to see a change in the terms of the trajectory of suicides um, for the five to 12 year old youth. And so essentially what we saw for black youth between that age, um, those, those, those years and you know, the age span of five to 12 is that 
between 1998 and 2012, I'm sorry, 1998 and 2002, that the rates were going upward, while at the same time they were going down for white youth, um, going up for black youth, going down for white youth. And then in terms of uh, engagement in suicide behaviors, what I've observed is that over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a striking increase in terms of the number of kids who are attempting um, suicide or having an injury related to a suicide attempt. And that primarily tends to be a black phenomenon. So you're talking then about the last 10, 15 years uh, or so, we're starting to see a spike in terms of deaths related to a suicide attempt and actual suicide attempts among black youth. You know, this is such a tough topic. You also mentioned the the bill. What is the work of the bill? Like what is a like what will it do and how will it impact someone in New York to California? Yeah. So first of all, the bill calls for um, the allocation of $805 million to address this issue. Um, everything from providing more resources to the National Institutes of Health to um, provide more research support to understand and unpack why we're seeing these rising trends. Um, mental health first aid, which is a sort of um, strategy to go into a school, for example, and train everyone in that school building on what the signs and indications that a kid might be at risk, what that looks like to help um, school personnel like custodial staff or coaches understand what depression um, looks like, the signs and indications of it uh, or trauma. You know, these may be factors that uh, underlie uh, engagement in suicide behavior. It also calls for um, the pipeline of training professionals, uh, particularly professionals of color, to go into uh, fields of uh, mental health to be able to be the providers that that youth of color go to when they are experiencing um, any sort of psychiatric or mental health issues. Because what we know is that people tend to uh, go to a professional or would be open to going to a professional who they think would understand them, that they can relate to, and that would um, you know, really be able to give them the feedback and advice to move forward in life because that person understands their unique experiences. And so among all those things, you know, the bill really provides the allocation of resources to be able to bring the uh, appropriate attention um, to this issue in many ways, including uh, research and all the other things that I've talked about. So there are a few things that you mentioned, non-psychiatric diagnoses of potential suicide. And I know this is a difficult topic. So for everyone listening, I think it's rather critical to be observant of the children and the people in your family that are around you, because we don't always know when someone is suffering or struggling and social media doesn't make it any easier. And if children are being more proactive in taking their own lives, that's a, that's a very scary concept. You have a number of parents that are probably still wondering what did they miss? What, how did this happen? And, and still struggling through the pain of their only child or one of their youngest or oldest children not being here anymore. And so I, I guess, um, Mike, when this, this non-psychiatric, like how, where do people start looking within and, and what can they do to, to try to protect the kids? Yeah, no, that's a really great point. So 
when I speak of uh, like non-psychiatric factors, um, I'm talking about, and this is, let me just be careful to say Latoya that we need to do more research to understand what the impact of these non-psychiatric or mental health factors might be. So let me unpack that a little bit more. Um, you know, everything from what we know to be like traumatic events that seemingly may pass over our head. We don't really think about it in terms of how it impacts our life, yet it does. And so uh, things like divorce, we don't think about that as a mental health issue. And so if a kid experiences uh, divorce in, in their family or uh, things like um, community violence or food insecurity, housing instability, all those kinds of uh, socioeconomic factors that you know, play a role in the level of stress one might be uh, uh, you know, exposed to really can weigh in on your emotional and psychological health. What research also tells us, Latoya, is that it also is related to our physical health and things like diabetes or hypertension, you know, those kinds of, uh, you know, physical factors that, you know, relate to our health and well-being. So all those stressors, again, we might not see them as quote unquote mental health concerns, but they have an influence on our lives. And so, you know, one of the things I would like to convey is that if you don't talk about any of these issues and how it impacts your life, you know, it can be out of control in the, to the extent uh, that it, it weighs on you uh, emotionally or physically. And so forums like this, this opportunity to talk to you um, in a non-academic way is really important because it helps us to spread the message. And you said something that is really, really critical, which is that we have to engage kids uh, about the stressors and um, you know, experiences in their life. So if they're having uh, academic challenges, we just don't want them to say, go back to school and work hard and do your work. You know, we wanna understand what those challenges are about. Um, if a kid doesn't feel like cleaning uh, up around the house or doing chores, you know, we don't wanna cast that off as being lazy, but we wanna understand what's going on here. Like, you know, there could be some underlying issues, right? That, you know, they're not talking about that, but that bothers them. And I think historically, and certainly uh, this has been the case even for me, uh, if I didn't wanna do anything around the house, or, you know, my mother's like, you're not gonna be around here and be lazy. You know, you better get yourself up and do whatever you have to do. But I think we just need to take stock of the things that our kids are exposed to from, you know, social media or news cycles where we see, you know, George Floyd or Trayvon Martin, we hear about that, you know, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Breonna Taylor, you know, all those kinds of things weigh in on us and affect us at um, a really deep level. And I think we just need to acknowledge it. We need to talk about the pain associated with it and process it with hopefully a professional, but even in, you know, your social networks or inner circles to be able to talk about these things, but most importantly with kids, to give them that opportunity to talk with you about what's happening with them. And this is one thing I'll say, and I'll close, because uh, I feel like I'm being long-winded here, but 
one last thing is that it's fairly simple and straightforward about how we reach kids. It's not rocket science. And so what I mean by that is we simply can ask them, how are you feeling? Not how you're doing, but how are you feeling? How was your day? What, what things impacted you today or made you feel excited or made you feel nervous? You know, to really help kids to understand their feeling state and to be able to process that, to be able to talk about it. Because what happens then is that when these issues are not discussed, there's high potential for that pain to be turned inward. Mm. And I tell you, you know, you've mentioned a few things, Mike, that are, are, are very timely. In addition to like the news, like even here in Harlem, just over on like 117th, 119th, they've been shooting a lot. And it's like, a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old were shot. One died. And to see that and know that there's a child who knows that person from school or there's a child that grew up with that other person and there's not really a space for them to process that. And I know this is a very deep conversation, but the part that we haven't even touched on, now, sometimes parents don't even have the capacity to help the children even deal with their feelings or acknowledge them. Like we're listening to these podcasts as we find our coping strategies. We go play golf, we go do things. And some people don't even have those outlets. They just go to work and their kids are home and the kids are going through something, but the parents are too tired. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of space to pay attention to anyone's mental health. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think it's really important for all of us to take stock of the things that are happening around us um, you know, you mentioned Harlem. I have recently spent time in, in my hometown of Washington, D.C., and, you know, some of the same things are happening. You know, babies are being shot. Um, there was a, an incident where an eight-year-old kid was playing a video game uh, in his home and was uh, a bullet pierced the window and shot this kid because, you know, folks were, were, were in a shootout. And so I think that, you know, there's this violence that's happening. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, in our communities and, you know, other kinds of challenges related to, you know, um, COVID. And we know that black and brown communities have been disproportionately impacted by it. I just learned of a childhood friend over the weekend who died from COVID. Um, all those kinds of matters are really impacting us and we need to talk about them. We need to be attuned to our emotional uh, and, and, and psychological health because it matters in terms of you know how we're able to get along um, um, during the course of a day to be able to focus and concentrate on our work and you mentioned parents to be able to parent our kids to be available to them in ways that you know they need us to be um, and so taking care of yourself and being attuned to uh, your mental health really becomes important i know for me recently in the last year or so i've started to be more intentional about um, uh, you know, meditation and, 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 and mindfulness kinds of activities. And it can be as simple as for 10 minutes, I would stop what I'm doing, relax my body. I may even lay down and I may do some deep breathing, um, feeling myself breathe in, holding my breath for a few seconds and breathing out just to release that tension in our body. Because, you know, when you don't do that, it's like a toxic kind of uh, chemical that's in your body that begins to shape and impact your health and all kinds of 
uh, bodily functions. And so just doing something as simple as meditation and, and, and some mindfulness activities like relaxation uh, for 10 minutes and doing deep breathing really, really helps because if you can't you know, be attuned to what's going on with you uh, and taking care of your health and well-being and being in a great space, you, you're not going to be good to anybody. I tell you, you know, you also have the kids that are in these private schools that are expected to perform at higher levels that are experiencing microaggressions because they may be the only one of color. And I've seen a lot of studies that talk about suicide in those spaces. The kids that seem to have it all are still also succumbing to, to suicide. And what are the thoughts for those parents to think that they've done everything they can? They put all the money and all the resources in place and their child is still at risk. You know, Latoya, I've had those conversations with uh, parents who are, you know, doing well for themselves from a socioeconomic perspective. And you're right, um, kids, first of all, the matter of the rising rates and suicides and suicide behavior among Black youth is not about low income, poor kids, right? This is a phenomenon that is happening irrespective of your socioeconomic level. So it's happening among upper middle class, middle class and, and whatever, right? So it's, it's, it's affecting a lot of kids. And so you're right. The issue of how kids are pressured and feel like they have to be on, they have to be so targeted all the time, uh, over-programmed perhaps because they don't wanna miss out on anything or their parents don't want them to miss out on anything. And I just think that it has to be a balance, right? There has to be this uh, infusion of a perspective of if you know you don't rise all the way to the top and you're the best in the class, that it does not mean that you are not uh, worthy or that you're not smart or any of those kinds of things. We know that we learn in different ways and some of us have you know talents and skills that others don't. And so I think that one strategy could be that uh, as caregivers and providers, um, you know those who are uh, mentoring kids is to understand what it is that they do best, what things bring them great joy, what are they passionate about and begin to then um, you know infuse in that passion and talent, uh, the resources or the support that they need to do well in that space. And so if a kid can draw well, um, you know, we need to cultivate and motivate that talent. We shouldn't force that kid to be a rocket scientist. You know what I mean? Like that kid knows and, and, and is passionate about the space of being um, an artist. And so we should affirm that. And so I think then that you know, we have the opportunity to reach them where they are and to give them the kind of support they need and to begin to balance things in a sense of, um, you know, for me, for, for example, um, I was a much better writer. I, I loved English. Um, I did okay with math and science, but, you know, I was more of a writer. And, and so, you know, it, it, it meant that I wasn't going to be a rocket scientist and that's fine, you know what I mean? And so the other thing that I think happens, and I just want to say this, you know, while I have this uh, platform, is that sometimes, you know, caregivers or parents live through their kids. Talk about know? it. And so I think it's important to 
you know, really give your, your, your child the space to be their own person and, and not have it be about what you want them to be or, you know, frame it around, you know, what opportunities you didn't have. And now you want to give it to, um, you know, your kids. I think balance is really, really important. And I think that the suspension of your wishes or your uh, missed opportunities in terms of how you invoke that on what your child should be doing, um, you know, it should be relaxed because you could pressure your kid uh, into a corner or into a space that could be incredibly harmful. And so while you're thinking then that your, your intention is for them to, you know, be supported or to have this and to have that, you know, you could be unintentionally creating more, um, you know, harm than, than, than good. How can parents feel comfortable in what they're doing um, to make sure that their kids' mental health is protected and that they're pushing them enough so that the child is not lazy? And we need to talk about mindset because, you know, telling a child if you don't do this is lazy when they grow up, it probably has a manifest itself in a peculiar way. But even just looking at the way that parents are just trying to do the best that they can with what they've been given or the resources they had or how they were raised and they only do what they know. And if you're only doing what you know, how can parents feel empowered? Because then it can, it can, there's no handbook. So what can parents do uh, to, and grandparents at this case, because sometimes they're at your child, your child is already who they are, but there are little babies that can be impacted. And maybe as grandparents, you could help change the trajectory. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And, um, you know, we could do a whole conversation on that alone. But what I'll just quickly say is that, you know, given um, space and opportunity for dialogue and, and, and really talking with your, your kid is, is really important. Years ago, there have been, um, there, there were lots of studies on what is the appropriate parenting style that leads to success. And study after study, uh, book after book, has uh, framed that the authoritative reciprocal parenting style is the best parenting style that leads to uh, uh, emotional um, and, and, and physical uh, development to its optimal extent. So what do I mean by that? Um, versus authority, author authoritative, um, not authoritative, like when you're just like uh, assertive and authoritative and, and you don't give, it's like my way or the highway. The authoritative reciprocal parenting style is like, you know, you give your kid the sort of space in which to operate. And these are the confines uh, of which, you know, you operate. So for example, um, if they want to go outside, you know, my mom used to tell us when the street light comes on, you need to be in the house. And so I knew then that it meant when that street light came on, I was in the house. If I was not there after the street lights came on, then there was a penalty or cost to pay, right? Um, but at the same time, there was somewhat flexibility and some negotiation, right? So if um, I needed to stay out longer because I was, you know, doing a project with a friend or something like that, there was give and take, right? Uh, and so my mom was relaxed on, okay, um, you don't have to stay, uh, I mean, you can stay longer than 
um, you know, after the streetlight comes on, but I, I need to, you know, when you're coming home, let me know and all that sort of stuff, right? So there's a lot of uh, flexibility there. And I think that, you know, the best way for us to have that uh, sort of, you know, flexibility is to have that relationship with your child where there's like some dialogue about what the things are that you want them to do, explaining to them why it's important for them to be inside uh, when the streetlights come on. Because, you know, um, if you're living in um, a community that, you know, things happen at, at night, you know, you want to safeguard the well-being of your child. Um, there's other examples I can get into, but you know, the point of the matter is that, you know, I think having that relationship and the dialogue to the extent that your child can bring matters to you, because that's the other thing too. If you're just like a, a, a demanding parent that says, it's my way or the highway, then if your child is feeling something that needs to be discussed with you, and if they feel like you're going to chop their head off, they're not bringing anything to you. And then you might miss an opportunity to meet your child where they are, to understand the challenges they're going through and to be able to help them and support them in the ways that they need um, to be supported. And so I think you have to be careful about that and you know, just really give uh, agency and space to that opportunity to have that rich dialogue and have a relationship um, you know, and so that there is that, um, you know, feeling of connectedness and, and, and being willing to discuss things um, and not fear that their head is going to be chopped off for, you know, bringing that matter to you. Yeah, I mean, that's you lose a lot of children to the streets that way. They're looking for family, someone to listen, someone to get advice and just be able to have that conversation. And then you're not able to help them because now they're seeking it from someone else. And then their trust is the trust is lost. Now I want to go back to something you, you mentioned. You said that. That's I said that. I said that. I love that. it. I love it. You said that. You say it again. Because uh, I can't say it again. I, I just talked for like two minutes, but you just cut it to the chase and you said it. That's exactly the case. I love Wait, it. We need to go back. You mentioned the bill and trying to get more people into this space. What made you like you studied at Morehouse? And so there for all those that are listening, Morehouse and a very hey. elite academic institution. But when you were in school, what even prompted you down this path towards just mental health awareness and the work that you're doing now? Yeah, that's a really great question. I growing up never thought or imagined that I would be in this space at all. Um, I went to college with the intention of being a lawyer, and, um, and that's what I wanted to do. Shout out to the lawyers out there who are doing their thing. Um, when I was at Morehouse, I, you know, I, I used it as an opportunity to kind of process and the readings that I was exposed to, the great thinkers of our time, um, helped me to make sense of my experiences that I saw growing up in Southeast Washington, DC. And I grew up during the, the, the crack era and um, you know, just saw a, a, the devastation of, of, of my community and, and people in my community who had the unfortunate you know, circumstance of being addicted to, to, to crack. And so I went to college then you know, at that time, just trying to understand what what happened. And uh, I felt like a bomb just just exploded in my community. And I just was trying to make sense of it. 
And so the more that I was exposed to, you know, great thinkers in the psychology space, like uh, Naeem Akbar or Wayne Nobles or Lawrence Gary, who, you know, talked about mental health and the, 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 the historical legacy of slavery and all these vestiges that, you know, in a contemporary uh, sense, impacted our lives, I felt like, wow, this mental health piece is like really, really interesting. And so I kept reading um, the, the mental health literature, uh, reading these, you know, sort of luminary thinkers in this space. And I just uh, fell in love with it because I knew that, you know, for me, um, when a person was addicted to crack or um, you know, any other, you know, substances where there was an addiction, you know, I felt like what they were doing was masking or trying to numb their pain, you know, and in terms of, you know, maybe it's their family life or uh, things that happened in their upbringing or, you know, maybe a stress related to work. And so I, I, I knew then that at the core of all of that was, you know, emotional, psychological health that, you know, these individuals were turning to substances to try to address that pain. And so then I felt like, you know, I wanted to be in that space. And uh, shout out to my, 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 my mentor, um, Lawrence Gary, who said, I think you should do research in this space. I think you should go get your PhD. And, 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 and study mental health and make contributions to what we know about Black youth and their mental health. And so um, that's why I ended up in this space. But, you know, I'm not by myself. I mean, there's like, you know, really, really great uh, colleagues and friends that I've been, you know, doing work alongside for the last 15, 20 years who are equally doing, you know, amazing things in this space. And I just feel so humbled that um, I had this opportunity to work alongside them and to try to address these issues for our community. Wow. Well, with that being said, what does change look like? Change. What change looks like, uh, just in a broader sense of things, um, you know, it looks like, um, you know, you don't have to succumb to doing business as usual. You know, you can think about an, an alternative uh, for your life no matter what it is, you know, um, you know, it, we, we can get into this uh, notion of re repetitive behavior and get so stuck into doing what we do that uh, we don't always see a way out and it can put blinders on. Um, and I think that, you know, the potential is that you might miss out on an opportunity um, because you are, you know, fearful of, of change or, you know, like sometimes we get into such a systemic um, uh, or systematic automatic kind of behavior that if that gets disrupted, it shakes up our whole core. Uh, and I will submit that sometimes our core needs to be shaken so that we can realize new opportunities. I see. And as we think about like new opportunities, one of the things I, I started to, to wonder, the mental health conversation and people of color in the workplace, when you start to think about the trauma or the behaviors and the aggressive actions that 
microaggressions or things of that nature that people are told aren't happening to them or they aren't experiencing. And you have a number of women and men that exit the workforce, people of color, women in general, from Me Too to just racial discrimination. Why aren't there conversations about the impact of mental health at work? I think because Latoya, in a broader sense, there's not a great appreciation in our society given to how salient mental health is to all aspects of our lives. Um, we don't engage in mental health promotion. Uh, we often tell people that it's important every year to go get your annual physical. Um, but what about your mental health physical, if you will, right? How are you attuned to, to that? And so it's just that in a broader sense of things in our society, we don't respect mental health as much as we should, yet, yet, it is so core to everything about us, you know? And so because we don't do that, Latoya, then in spaces like work and the stressors related to it, we, we don't provide those opportunities for people to, to really go somewhere and sort of talk about, um, you know, those challenges. We often might tell people, yeah, you know, fight it out or, 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 or get over it or be tough, you know, don't worry about it. It's just being black in America and, you know, the reality or being a woman in America. And the reality is that, you know, those, uh, you know, larger level um, discriminations and, and, uh, and slights related to, um, you know, being who you are in terms of how you identify uh, is really, um, it can weigh in on us in terms of uh, wear us down. And, and, and so we, we, we have to provide those opportunities uh, for us to, to, to really process uh, any pain or any frustration or stressors associated with those challenges. So that would be difficult if the entities don't acknowledge that the experience that you have is different than someone else's. It may be more stressful because the environment is not necessarily welcoming. And to admit that and to provide the mental health piece, it, it would almost be an admission of inequity and, and just not an evil or loving, uh, an even or level playing field. So there's a there's a challenge there. There is a challenge there, and you know I I'm all for you know and I. I hope that the, my hope is that the world, I'm an eternal optimist and I, and I hope that the, the world can be a better place where we can, you know, give space to understanding, you know, each other uh, in a greater way to understand how, um, you know, a matter like George Floyd, if you identify as being black in America, how that's going to impact you or Breonna Taylor, like how that might impact you. Um, uh, and on to what happens in, in terms of the workspace uh, when you feel like you're slighted because of how you identify. Um, you know, those things are, 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 are harmful and, and they're awful to experience. And so, you know, my hope is that, you know, we grow as, as a society and, and really give, um, you know, space to the opportunities to express that. And I think the more that we agitate, the more that we, you know, that's why change is so important, you know, because, uh, you know, you don't realize the otherness and what is possible if you um, don't 
give space to change. Ah, so do we want to talk about the NFL case study right now that is kind of presenting itself of consistent institutional discrimination and how that manifested? Think about the well, for anyone that doesn't know, this Gruden person had uh, was in a position of power. And when you start to trace like any, you know, he sent some very offensive emails that someone obviously I don't know the whole story, but I'll tell you the parts that are matter that matter for right now sent these emails and or this email and it was very like had a lot of derogatory language and just when you start to look back at his history and his career you start to see that he intentionally was making a number of decisions that impacted people of color that were in positions like the one black punter or the one black you know defensive coach or whatever and you start to think about all of the mental health impacts that that had on each of those players that questioned their worth, that questioned their ability to execute. And maybe they knew what it was, but the NFL obviously has a culture issue just by way of the treatment of Kaepernick. But as we go backwards and we go forward and we look at it, where do those individuals that are experiencing it, where do they go to, to get peace? I mean, you're right. You're told to have just a thick shell and go on and move on. But if you look at Let's move on to a different place, the post office, where like rest in peace to the people that were most recently killed. You see that it manifests itself in a very negative way. Yeah, no, I think that most Fortune 500 companies do have um, uh, EAPs where you can go to and, and talk to a professional, hopefully with no uh, sort of negative uh, uh, retribution. You know, um, it's supposed to be a, a, a place where you can go uh, and, um, and, free, and feel free to express yourself in a way or you know, talk about the things that are going on without being penalized. Um, but I, I, I do think that if you don't have an EAP to go to, um, to be able to come home or, uh, or be with your friends and really talk about it and process it, um, becomes really important. I think that we have to support each other, um, our loved ones, our friends who are going through those battles to give them that space to be able to express how it makes them feel and, and not be so uh, prompt to say, oh, get over it, it's gonna be all right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to practice in my own space, Latoya, not to say that to my friends and loved ones, like, don't worry about it, it's gonna be okay. I'm trying to give you know five or ten more minutes to you know you want to talk about how that makes you feel, you know, so that in my own space and, and within my own network, I'm giving you know my friends and loved ones the opportunity to really talk about the things that that matter to them the most. Um, but I think we oftentimes will you know be prompt to say you know move on, it's going to be okay, pray about it uh, or whatever, and we, um, as I frame it, we blunt the range of emotional expression, right? So we don't really give that opportunity to ourselves or to the folks that we care about, you know, that room to really express how things make them feel and, 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 and give them that opportunity to, you know, make those adjustments in their lives as a result of the things that they're experiencing. Absolutely. I say go to God all the time and then go to the therapist. Go to That's both. Right. That's right. Go to both. That's right. That's right. So talk about things that matter. How did you get into golf? Because clearly that matters for this conversation and this podcast. And, you know, all of us lighten up. And when we think about such a heavy topic, 
we have to find these outlets. So I understand that golf is one of yours. I mean, by way, that is how we come to know each other as well. So right. do share, how did you even get into golf? Well, it kind of started in, um, in college, maybe even over like um, one of my friends in college um, did a summer internship uh, here in New York and, uh, and came back and said, you know, hey, hey, hey guys, like the, the thing that we have to do now is play golf because deals are made on the golf course, this, that, and the other. And so um, I started to, to, you know, take lessons around that time. And then I kind of put it away because I was like, you know, I don't know if it's for me. And, you know, uh, I just was not really into it, into it. Um, and then I just, you know, returned to it. And I got to say, Tiger has had a great influence on a lot of us playing golf. Let's be real, right? So we see we see that brother out there doing his thing, and we're like, okay, wow, you're like golf. He made it look so cool, and uh, and 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 so um, you know, a lot of my friends were playing golf, and and so I guess you know through those connections, peer pressure, maybe um, I started playing um, golf. Um, a little, uh, maybe over about 20 years ago on a consistent basis. And um, I got to tell you, it's, you know, there's this phrase, I guess people say, that what's your Zen? What's the thing that brings you most happiness and peace in your life? And that's golf for me. Um, you know, if I, you know, want to just de decompress and, 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 and go into another world or another space, golf is that for me. Because when I'm on the golf course, all I'm thinking about is that course. Um, I'm thinking about how I'm, you know, uh, approaching the challenges on the course and everything else is blocked out for me. And so, um, you know, some years ago, Latoya, when I realized that golf was doing that for me, I wanted to do more of it. And so that's sort of how I got into golf and, and, and that's what I get out of it, you know, based on um, what it gives to me. So even as you think about your experiences with golf and mental health, how would you explain to someone else how they can make it or use it as a tool to improve their mental health versus getting caught up in, you know, just different asks? Because it, it's a sport in itself. And so you have to be very intentional to, to focus on your mental health. How 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 would you advise someone do that? Or what has your experience been? So I'm going to share something that is so deep, right? One time I was playing golf, um, me and my, uh, my brother and I were playing golf with uh, um, this other gentleman. And, you know, we were on our card. And after um, the, we went through the first hole, we put our scores down. Uh, like my brother and I put uh, our scores down. And then we went to the second hole and we put our scores down again. And then something said, well, wait a minute. Uh, what is the other guy? Um, you know, what's his score? And so I said, uh, I, I can't remember his name now, but I said, hey, listen, I didn't get your score on the first uh, hole. And then what did you get on this hole? And you know what he said? He goes, I don't keep the score. Okay. Okay. Think I, about I, that for a second. No, I trust me. I know that one. Yeah, like, what like, do I need to score for? Right, right. He's, <laughs> I, I said, I said, okay, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he, he said, yeah, when I play golf, I never keep the score. I just 
come out to play. I don't get wrapped up in my head about, you know, what my score is and all that sort of stuff. I just come out to play. And I thought then in that moment, as I reflected on what he was saying, I said to myself, Latoya, what if life was like that? What if relationships were like that, where we didn't keep the score? Wow. Wow. That, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think the more that I played and, you know, when you play with different folks, you know, you get a sense of uh, different, you know, pearls of wisdom and anecdotes that you live with for the rest of your life that become, you know, those life lessons and things that, you know, can, can really help you to um, process things or to overcome challenges. Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that you mentioned earlier with the breathing, like where else are you in out in the open where you just can sit there and meditate and pay attention to everything that's going on? Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, you know, that's another thing that I get out of golf really is, is being one with nature and, 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 and seeing the, the greenery and the shrubbery and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It's just like, it, it, it takes you, it's like an oasis, right? You just go into this other space and, you know, it's not about really anybody else or it's not about what's going on in the outside world. It's about, you know, this challenge that's in front of you. And, um, you know, a, a book that actually I recommend uh, for anybody, but particularly for those who golf is um, a book by, I think his name is Bob Rotella, it's called uh, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And one of the things that he's a golf, he's a psychologist, but he's a golf, um, uh, he's a, uh, uh, I guess, a mental health coach for, for professional golfers. And um, one of the things I love that he says in the book is that, and this helped me with my um, frustrations around um, hitting a bad ball or, or missing a shot or whatever, and he says that there's never a such thing as a bad shot or, 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 or miss hit on the golf course. And he said, because that next shot is an opportunity, you know, it's an opportunity to, to forget about what just happened. It's an opportunity to, um, you know, meet your next challenge and, and so it's, it's almost like you, you forget about what just transpired and you focus on what's in front of you, no matter what obstacles or challenges you face with hitting that next shot, you just focus on it. And so um, I just really appreciate golfing that in that way, because, you know, as I'm playing, I realize that, you know, I am, it's, it's, it's like therapy really, because it really is challenging you about as you know well, how you're approaching, you know, your round, you know, how you want to approach that shot. In fact, one more thing I'll say in this book that, you know, really stands out for me. He, he says that, you know, the round of golf actually begins before you get on the course and you have to imagine what kind of round this is going to be for you. And to the extent that you imagine that this round is going to be a great one, you know, you can manifest that. Yeah. And it's all about presence. I mean, I can tell you, I've played a lot of golf this week. And um, one of the days we were trying to get to the course, I was like almost on E. The course was 
23 miles away and I had 36 miles of gas left. And I'm like, if we make one wrong turn and then we arrive at the chorus and we're like five minutes late and we're running up to the tea box and we don't warm up and there's no food and I didn't eat breakfast. It, it was a terrible round. But to your point, everything, I did nothing to prepare myself mentally beforehand. Yeah. I was not prepared. And by the 18th hole, I just wanted to, to crawl home. Right, right. No, I know what you mean. And so then like those things that, you know, those pearls of wisdom that I use or take to the golf course, then I bring back to my life. And, um, and I try to manifest those things in my life. So yeah, I mean, you can uh, frame the kind of situation that you're going to experience by how you, you know, create a mindset around it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have any favorite golf moments or memorable scenarios that's happened or that have happened to you on the golf course? Yeah, I um, so so in the same vein of like you never hit a bad shot. I remember one time um, I actually was coming off the drive and I hit my ball over to the other uh, fairway and I was playing with uh, a friend of mine who's like a scratch golfer. Um, he said, uh, I want to show you something. And so um, there was like a, a, a row of trees in between the fairway that I'm supposed to be hitting down and the fairway that I hit onto. And so uh, we went to my shot and he said, I'm going to show you how to hit this shot over those trees. And he said, watch what happens to my ball. I'm going to get it right on the green. And he did that. He did that, Latoya. He hit that shot and it went way up in the air over into, it did like a, like a curve over into the other, um, you know, green that I was supposed to be on, right? And so I will never forget that because he manifested for me in that moment that there's never a bad shot. And wow. so that's like one of my favorite, favorite moments um, in my entire time of playing golf. Wait, but what happened to your ball when you hit it? Oh, well, it went to the trees and then it went down. <laughs> You're like, well, all things are possible. But but I tell you what, I tell you what, Latoya, I was able, so that happened to me again. And this, uh, not on the same course, but another course. And this time I remembered what he did. Um, and I, I was able to get my ball over into, I didn't get on the green, but I got into close to the green to the other uh, fairway. And so, yeah, um, my ball didn't make it over in that one time, but another time it did. Should we talk about the fact that you're on other fairways or should we just skip over that part? No, let's let's, (laughs) let's (laughs) skip over that. Okay, okay, okay. So any favorite course? The the one thing that pains me um, is that, you know, living in New York and I don't have my car here is that I don't get to play as much as I would like to play. And so, as you know, um, you know, golf is one of those things where if you play a lot, you will build up your muscle memory and things will become habitual that you don't have to be in your head when you're, you know, getting ready to hit a shot or to hit a putt, like you don't overthink it and you just going through, go through the motions in terms of your, the, what's, what has become habitual to you. And so the thing that I'm sad about the most, to be honest with you, is that I don't get to play golf as much as I want to. That's fair. I mean, that's the plight of a New York City 
northern, you know, like we're in the north and it's New York City. Like that's right. our that's our play. You have to get it in while you can because, you know, that's it's right. not going to be there. That's right. But, you know, there's another piece that you mentioned, though. It's like, how do you get outside of your head knowing where you're at? And even in our lives, right, like we come to these meetings and there are people that are going to be like more experienced or they've written 10 books or they've done all of these other things. And you step into the space and you've been given a platform or a place in that room. So it's even just showing up in life. But on the golf course, like what's your experience been knowing that, you know, we're New York City golfers. Our experience is different. Our greens look like. I don't know. <laughs> I played at a course and the greens were like porcelain. And I'm like, I'm used to playing on pinball machine, aerated greens. It's right. like somebody's backyard. So like even stepping into the course, how do you prepare your mindset for or your mental space to, to play with anyone? That's a really great question because I tend to play when I do with friends who are much better golfers than me. Um, they play a lot more. Uh, several of them are almost like scratch golfers, if not scratch golfers. And so um, I, they, they bet, they put, you know, money down. And, uh, and so, you know, you feel pressure to, to, to stress, stress, with, stress, stress, well, stress, stress, stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I just try to, you know, be within my own space and, and to, and to not, uh, you know, live someone else's life, but to really live mine. And there are times when I tell them, hey, listen, um, if I'm not feeling like I've played enough to be able to, you know, sort of keep up, I'll tell them I'm, I'm out of this bet. Like, yeah, I'll go ahead and play and, you know, I'll just, you know, keep my score and do what I do. And then there's sometimes when I'm really feeling um, good about myself and I'm like yeah you know go ahead and I'm betting you know I'm my money is in the skins pot right all that sort of stuff but then again I think ultimately I try to um you know just reset Latoya and and appreciate the moment right to not feel as much pressure around playing something that is so enjoyable right and so I just I relax myself. I say, hey, listen, even if I do put up money and I lose it, it's okay, right? I'm having fun. You know, we're joking around. We're, you know, challenging each other. And all of that is 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 a reprieve from life as I know it. And it's a time for me to, you know, have some fun and enjoy myself. And so, you know, that's how I approach those moments. You know, and one of the things that you're mentioning, it like is also another mental health theme around toxic mas masculinity and just being able to hold your own space in a in a time where there's just like a lot of behaviors and 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 things that are happening that you know discouraging a man to feel his feelings or discouraging a person to to own the space that they're in. Like, what are your thoughts about how that is impacting like the world and how people can leverage golf maybe to to address that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it is a, a time and a space to, um, you know, acknowledge your vulnerabilities, you know, like somebody may be really great at putting, but their short game may not be so great or and they may have, you know, it's like three major parts of it, as you know, right, it's like the drive, it's the, it's the, well, actually, then it's the approach, and then it's like your short game, and then your putting, so maybe four as I see it now. Um, and so you may be good at two out of the four and 
And, and so, you know, sometimes it's interesting to see guys or, 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 or women, whomever I'm playing golf with, you know, try to overcompensate or they don't acknowledge that, you know, they're doing two out of the four really well. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that I try to do is just, you know, um, be authentic and, 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 and to convey my vulnerability. Uh, even it's vulnerable for me to say, you know, hey, listen, um, you know, times that I, I don't um, bet with them, I, I might say, hey, listen, I haven't been playing as much as you all play. And, you know, you're better golfers than I am. Um, and, and, and I'm OK with that because I know why. I'm doing this, you know, I'm not trying to be a, a, a professional golfer out here. I'm trying to, you know, just enjoy the, the scenery, enjoy the challenge and the opportunities that they bring me, you know, um, you know, as I said, the challenges and the opportunities that they bring me, right? So, you know, that's what it's all about. I think it's also um, a space, Latoya, where, you know, we have uh, conversations, um, be it politics or other social commentaries that, you know, um, we challenge our thinking on that through discourse. And I think that that's important too, you know, um, that we have those opportunities where we're, um, you know, helping to reshape uh, or reimagine the things that we, you know, brought to the course that might have been toxic in terms of our perceptions or the schemas in our mind about how we approach or think about those things. So, you know, this kind of leads me to a different question or line of questions regarding like who you play with, you know, in business or like in the law field or doctors, they'll all play with one another. But I don't know if like in academia or in the space that you're in around mental health, do you find yourself playing golf for work or has golf been part of your work repertoire? You know what? It has not been as much. I mean, there are times when um, if I want to build a relationship with, uh, you know, a work colleague or someone that I'm endeavoring to, 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 to do work uh, with, um, I might play golf. I remember being a, a, an assistant professor um, when I first came out of um, uh, grad school and there was um, a, a senior professor that I played golf with a lot once we, uh, you know, identified that we both love playing golf. And it was really great for me to play golf with, 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 with this professor because I began to understand some of the history of the school and some of the politics and that sort of thing. And it really helped me um, in, you know, in, in terms of my tenure track and going up for tenure. Um, not that I wanted to, um, you know, have this person, you know, it wasn't about a hookup or anything in terms of like, uh, I'm going to help you get tenure because we study vastly different fields. So it was not none of that, but it was just about, you know, understanding the work environment and understanding the history of things um, because this person had been there for a long time. And so it was a really wonderful uh, way to, you know, um, uh, marry the two in terms of golf and, and work. And so I gained a lot from that experience and um, I will always, you know, treasure that. And, I, and, I, and otherwise, though, I, I do think that golf is really powerful in that uh, sense of bringing people together um, and it can be for a greater good. So it sounds like the, the secret tool you have in your back pocket. Yes. 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 So it's, it's actually one of the first questions I will ask, um, you know, 
uh, work colleagues or you know folks that I'm I'm newly developing um, a, a work connection to, I will ask them, you know, do they play golf? Okay. Okay. And that's a, that's a good, and I mean, honestly, I feel like it's one of the best ways to, to get to know someone. And if they want to learn, like, sure, I'll take you out. We can go to the driving range. I won't commit too much, but we can go to the driving range together. Yeah. Um, what people don't know about you though, is that you really play golf. And in fact, <laughs> you're one of those people that if I, when I, when I play golf, golf with you, like it can be intimidating because, you know, you're really great at it. And so um, I just want to put that out there. Oh, thank you. But that's really, I'm, the irony is I'm one of those people that is not pressed on keeping my score. I'm like, I hit that drive. That's well. true about you too. That's true. Yeah. I am not pressed. And I, and I, and it's, it, the irony is that I golf taught me how to just appreciate each individual moment. Yeah. Like my drive was excellent. I'm good with that. Yeah. I had, you know, that was a good putt. I'm good with that. Yeah. I, I played with the same ball for the whole round. I'm good with that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You like, know well, what you're not losing balls because they're going wayward. They're going this way, light, <laughs> left, right. It's always straight and consistent. Oh, so yeah, there, there you have it. My secret is out. I keep my ball in the fairway most times. <laughs> yes, I bear my witness. My secret is out. <laughs> I bear witness. Um, so for the people that are listening in DMV, what are some of your favorite courses in that area? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So, all right. Um, the one course that I play the most in the DMV is uh, Oak Creek, and it's in Upper Marlboro. Um, many folks will know about Oak Creek um, if you're listening and you're from that area. Um, I also play... Um, Lake Presidential, which is also in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Um, I play, well, I used to play the Timbers at Troy, which is in Elk Ridge, Maryland. That's a really tough course. Uh, the landscape, um, I haven't played there in years, but the landscape was beautiful. Um, and it's a really challenging course. Um, I play at Blue Mash, which is actually in Montgomery County. That's another really great course. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's something I'm missing. Oh, renditions. So renditions is really cool because uh, that's in Davisonville, Maryland. And renditions, actually each hole is a replica of a hole from a major um, course, right? And so one of the holes, for example, uh, is a replica of Amen Corner from Augusta. And so mm -hmm. it really feels like, um, you know, uh, on each hole that you're playing at one of the more renowned courses. And so that's called renditions. That's a really great one. Okay. So I'm going to have to add that to my, my list of golf courses on my travel, on my travel list. So um, I was on a golf trip. So a friend of mine, um, does uh much like you organizes golf trips and and so um we went to arizona uh scottsdale and when was that in mid-june and latoya um we would we would tee off during the seven o'clock hour so the last person in our group was teeing off around like maybe 7 45 or 7 50 but like when we got to uh, the 16th hole, um, it was already 118 degrees, you know? Um, so that was, oof, that was torture. 
That was torture. So if you had to give recommendations, so on our last podcast, we had Steve Outlaw and he's in Arizona and he mentioned that you, you actually get more yardage from like desert golf. If you had to make some recommendations, do you get more yardage and should you play earlier? Because how much earlier can you play if you start at seven? Right. I think uh, there were folks that were teeing off, uh, I want to say, during the six o'clock hour. So you can definitely do that. Uh, there were folks that were going out before our, our group. Um, I, I, I can't recall whether I had more distance based on <laughs> the, the dry air, um, but... I know that because I, yeah, I uh, sort of asked my friend, like, why this time of the year? It's like blazing hot, and um, and he mentioned that you know there were during that time frame there were, there were really great rates um, that if you go um, in other parts of the year, like namely in the winter for us on the East Coast, um, but you know like January February. The, the rates are really outrageous, um, like 300, maybe more around. Um, and so, um, you know, that was his uh, reason for doing it during that time frame. Uh, it was fun, though. I mean, we had a great, great time, great fellowship. Um, you know, we really played um, play some really great courses. But I just know for me uh, and the grander scheme of things, um, I'm not good with uh, below 50 degree weather and 118 degree. <laughs> well, you know what? That discount golf will cost you in one way or another. In one way or another. Exactly. So, okay. We are talking about golf and the intersection, mental health and just suicide awareness. And then as we like, we start to think about you and your journey. If you had to create your dream foursome, who would be in it? Oh my God. That's a really great question. All right. The oh. audience is waiting to hear it, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everyone says Tiger Woods. They do. They do. And they were they were saying like the 1990 version of Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, if it was the 2021 version, I may have a chance. I don't know. Before or after the Genesis incident. Right. You're right. Mm, uh, maybe, yeah. maybe after. Uh, uh, no, before. Yeah. Before it rolled off the hill. Before. <laughs> you want it before. <laughs> But no, so my my uh, ideal or dream foursome, I definitely would have um, would have uh, Tiger in it, um, and it could be anybody, right? They don't have to be necessarily a golfer. They don't have to be a golfer, no. All right, All right. so and it can be a historical person. Yes, they can. Wow, this is I love this. Oh my god. Um, you know what? I don't know if you ever heard this response, but I love to have uh, Harriet Tubman. Okay, okay. Yeah. You think she gonna, do you think she's going to find your ball? Like why? <laughs> no, nah, because I just would love to uh, just rap to her about about life and you know just about the the kind of like stick to itness that I imagine that. Um, that she had and you know the the most um seemingly uh indomitable challenges that she she overcame I, i'd love to just you know just pick her brain about about that um i think uh it would be really interesting to include in that for some um 
maybe uh, Obama, Barack Obama, President Obama, um, because uh, you know just the first um, in 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 terms of what we never imagined would happen in our society, all the things that you know um, he was you know considering or contemplating and um and then uh a fourth person my mom doesn't play golf but i'd like to have my mom out there okay so you've got barack you've got tiger you've got harriet tubman and then you put your mom but that means you're not you're not playing so who's the caddy then you must be oh, the caddy wow, wow, that means true. you're not playing that's true okay okay so then i guess i mama sit this one out let me, uh, <laughs> I go off with these uh, incredible folks. She could wait at the clubhouse and, you know, greet you when, when it's time yeah. to come back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. awesome, awesome. So one of the, the last questions I'll ask you before we wrap up, you know, if you were talking, so this season, the focus has been gems, gems of wisdom, you know, as if you were talking to someone on a golf course, but this is the audience. And just really thinking about, you know, the work that you've done and just how, you know, how it's playing out now. You know, you were telling me about your podcast and just the things that are happening next for you. Tell me more and tell the audience more about, well, what's next? Yeah, um, I think for me, the power of operating in your purpose, you know, um, really knowing what you have been uniquely created to do is so powerful and to be unrelenting in terms of, operating um, in that space. And so there are times, Latoya, where, you know, you may be daunted by the current circumstances, or you may even, you, you may have even been told that, you know, what you're doing is impossible. No one has ever done that before. Um, or that, you know, you have to have this, you have to have that in order for it to, to work out well, because if you don't have this and you don't have that, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna work. Um, I think the thing that trumps all of that is to operate in your purpose. Because when you are doing what, and I'm a spiritual person, right? So I identify with God in my life, right? So when you're doing what God has uniquely created you to do, there's nothing that can stop you. There's nothing that's too um, tall for you to, to, to climb over. Um, and there's, there's nothing that can just, can, can stunt you from, from progressing. Uh, I firmly believe that and I'm committed to that. And I've seen the manifestation of that in my life. And so then the work that I do, um, I, I know, Latoya, that I've been called to do it. I know that this is consistent with my purpose. Um, all the things that I experienced in my life growing up in Southeast Washington, DC, being raised by a single mom and really asking so many times why, you know, struggling with this or struggling with that. I know that those matters or situations really brought me to this point of being in fulfillment of purpose. And so I just feel incredibly humbled that um, I have been uniquely created to do the things that I'm doing. You're uniquely created to do what you're doing. 
Um, and so then it, it minimizes, you know, things like envy or jealousy or, you know, wishing for this or wishing for that. Like everything happens in the way that it was purposed uh, to happen for you. And so as long as it, you are, you know, walking in the fulfillment of your purpose. And, and by the way, to, to the parents, that's why it's important to cultivate uh, some intentionality around your child's interest and the things that your child is passionate about and to ensure that they're not living your dream, but they're living their dream. They're living what the creator has uniquely purpose for their lives. And so, you know, that becomes really important. And it's our job and our responsibility to help support that um, as loved ones or as caregivers. And I feel like that that works for me. That's 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 the lane in which I operate. And uh, it minimizes a lot of stress in my life. I just want us to talk a little bit about the manifestations that you've made, like the Black Men and Boys campaign, this podcast, these conversations. Just run the list so that people know how to consume more of the content that you've uniquely created. Yeah, yeah no, that's a great point. Um, so, yes, we have been um, unabashed at McSilver, um, for example, and shout out to um, my, my, my partners there. Uh, we collaborate and think about these things together. I'm gonna give a shout out to Rose, Pierre-Louis, and um, uh, Andy Cleek, uh, Amul Kowalik, uh, Federica Steins, all of the other incredible partners at McSilver, uh, Cheryl um, 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 uh, Hall- Solomon Huggins, uh, so, uh, hugging Solomon. I'm getting it all mixed up right now. Charge um, it to your head, not your yeah. heart. They know your heart. All, that, yes. all, those, all those great folks, right? Uh, Miles, Martin, uh, everyone, everyone, Crystal. I'm just, I just want to name everyone because they, um, you know, we're, we're in it together. It's not, it's not an I, it's, it's like we, right? And so together we've been, you know, looking at these issues and thinking about the relevancy of these issues for our community. And we're really trying to push the needle. And like I said, being unabashed about, you know, these these issues in terms of um, their impact on our community and our need, our platform that we have to say something about. So we've had the Black Men and Boys campaign. Soon we're going to have uh, Black uh, Women and Girls campaign. Um, you know, we have done this podcast on um, uh, ringing the alarm about Black youth suicide. We were a part of the working group of experts that did the report on ring the alarm um, that, as I mentioned, was the basis for the Pursuing Equity and Mental Health Act. Um, you know, so many other things, the McSilver Awards, where we've honored, um, you know, vanguards of social justice, including Meek Mill, um, uh, Tarana Burke, um, so many uh, great others that, um, you know, are doing things. Um, Erica Ford, shout out to Erica Ford, you know, for the great work that she has been doing. Um, but, you know, and others, uh, and I hate to shoot out names like that because there's so many people that are in this work with us, Latoya, that are, you know, doing, um, you know, yeoman's work and that need to be acknowledged, that need to be affirmed, that need to g- be given the credit for, for doing uh, the things that they're doing um, to, to really elevate the consciousness of our community. I, I tell Rose all the time, like, I'm, I, I want to be an honorary Haitian because 
uh, the work that she does and others that they do with the Haitian Roundtable is just so affirming of what it means to be, you know, Haitian and particularly Haitian in the context of the uh, United States, um, and how it's like this this reach this reaching out to 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 hey I love that I just I I, I love the celebration of of, of 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 blackness and and being affirmed in who we are. Um, and, and so I, I try to do that and we, and we partner with others who are doing great work in the space of, um, all of these matters, whether we're talking about LGBTQAI, or we're talking about, um, those who are living with, um, you know, um, I don't say disabilities, but, you know, physical, physical or cognitive challenges, um, you know, all of those kinds of, uh, partners that are in there doing great work, you know, I just, I, I just really feel like blessed um, to have that opportunity to, uh, and I feel like all of that is the fulfillment of purpose. Uh, shout out to my Morehouse brother, Michael Warren, who has partnered with us, and he was a part of the working group of experts um, that um, created the report. Um, you know, all of those, um, um, you know, really incredible uh, people, David Banks and others who are just working in this space and, and doing great things. I'm just, uh, Ann Williams Isom, uh, just uh, uh, Jennifer Jones Austin, like great, great people, just, whew, man. You know, it's powerful and it takes a community and it takes, it's not the effort of one, but it's all of us collectively being able to kind of change the trajectory. And, you know, as a, as a person that actually goes to Pastor Mike's, Mike Weldon's church, you know, just seeing the impact of the work that he does in Harlem specifically, creating the Hope Center, a space for mental health and to raise the just the, to change the narrative and the conversation that it is God, but God and God and therapy, God and treatment, because it's not, you know, a lot of the things and the tools that we need to be successful have not been afforded to us. And so for him to intentionally place that and place the dream center in the community that needs it, it's, it, it is a collective effort. It's all of us using our power and our opportunity to, to change the life of someone else just by one action. You know, it's that butterfly effect. I'm a huge yeah. believer in that. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Uh, just a uh, shout out to to Pastor Mike and all the uh, the, the team members, um, um, Pastor Mike's um, um, significant other, uh, you know. Yes, Pastor Lakeisha. I mean, it's yeah, just, Pastor you know, Keisha. it's- I couldn't remember her name. But no, I, was, yeah. I got you, I got you. But yeah. it, it is a community. And so with that, I wanna just thank you for like being on the podcast and just sharing your work and the work that you're doing. And for everyone listening, you know, they'll be able to, to follow up and see a lot of the things that you've shared. I probably won't be able to tag everyone that you shouted out because I'm gonna struggle to do that. But I definitely will share all of the resources so that they can help improve the space around them as well. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about a range of issues that, um, you know, hopefully will resonate with someone. And um, thank you for doing the work because it really matters. Somebody needed to hear this. So here we are. Yeah. And of course, sure. it's golf. Come on. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on another episode of Tease Me. Did you know suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people between 10 to 24? 
If you know someone that's suffering, never dismiss what your loved one is saying. Listen with empathy and provide support and learn the warning signs, most importantly. There's a website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Please check it out. And if you know someone that needs support, please get them the help. As you listen to this podcast, understand that it happens in every community. As we get older, we've gained more experience, we have more resources, and we have a better understanding of our emotions usually. Children don't always have that. While they may not have the language to express themselves, they definitely feel deeply. And so I ask that you use this time to explore the relationships of the people closest to you and make sure that they're okay. Check on them. And if you haven't identified your place of peace, your zen, or the activity that gives you peace, whether it be running, golf, or yoga, I don't do yoga, but finding the thing that gives you peace Please do that and protect your mental health and be more aware of mental health needs in our community. It is not something that is commonly discussed or spoken about. So take the first step. Talk about it. Have that uncomfortable conversation. Start pushing the envelope and then we can change the narrative. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Tease Me.